Well, we have two weeks left in the book of Acts. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 27. Uh, this is a nautical chapter. <laughs> uh, it's a chapter where Paul is being transported as a prisoner uh, to Rome. And it's a fascinating look uh, into uh, spiritual leadership. But I think even more than that, it gives us a robust vision or lessons um, in uh, in a, a dominant theme in the book of Acts, and that is lessons in witness. I think it's a return to actually the beginning of Acts when we see Jesus speaking to his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples the night of his betrayal? He said, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And what I want us to see today is the power of Paul's witness to the gospel in the midst of suffering. He is a prisoner going to Rome to actually face his execution. And yet his gospel witness, the victory of the gospel, the power of its expansion, the reality that when Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, is being played out even in this chapter in which Paul is a prisoner, uh, as I call it, the nautical chapter, for it's, it's this fascinating chapter of Paul's transport, sailing, entering into a storm, being shipwrecked, but moving from prisoner to commander-in-chief, essentially. Just this incredible influence that, that God has given to Paul. But more than his leadership, what I want us to see is how he continues to witness uh, to the power and the authority and the presence of the living Christ uh, through his actions, through his words. Uh, and I think it reminds us of this, that sudden challenges in life can throw us off, can take us by surprise, but it is in those moments that the strength or weakness of our character is revealed. And I would argue that it is in the furnace of existence that we discover what we are made of. Paul's consistency of character in the midst of suffering and danger is an inspiring lesson in witness. And I believe that we are to do as James commands in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is my desire that we be a community whose witness is driven by the fact that we are possessed by God, prepared by God, and protected by God. And that is the, the, the calling that is upon our lives to be a community that witnesses to the truth of Jesus. And so what I want us to learn from this chapter is lessons in witness because this is what we are called to be in the city of Portland. So let's begin. In verses one through six, the first lesson in witness that we discover is, is this incredible perspective of favor. Look at these verses. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses are behind me on the screen. And it says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship, of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. 
The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So here we see the beginning of the journey to Rome. And Paul has been delivered, uh, along with other prisoners, to the Augustan cohort named Julius. And I think that there is something to be noted here that, that I think is a mark of true witness, and that is the special favor by which God has put upon Paul in regards to his relationship to the one uh, who is over him. He is a prisoner under the, the, under the Augustan cohort, Julius, and yet Julius treats Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And I think that this is a picture that is absolutely necessary in witness, and that is this, what I call spiritual favor or influence or attractiveness or even grace upon someone's life. It's what we call anointing. Now, it's fascinating. This week, uh, actually, the moment I'm done preaching, I have to jump in the car and go home and pack really quick, and then I'm driving off to Cannon Beach because I'm teaching tonight um, at the Cannon Beach Conference Center, but I'm actually there all week with uh, a man who is marked by absolute favor, uh, and, and that is Luis Palau. And so I, I get the honor of preaching with Luis Palau for, for the next six days. I'm going to be teaching eight times. Uh, many of you know Luis actually has terminal cancer uh, we will probably not have him much longer with us, so this is a real honor. But one thing about Luis that has always struck me, every time I have breakfast with him, he's just a man who is marked by this charisma, uh, this, this attractiveness that people are just absolutely drawn to. And we think of that in terms of what is the spiritual gift of evangelism? I would say at the end of the day, that the, at the most basic level, evangelism is nothing more than favor with non-believers. And Luis has that in spades. Like when you go to breakfast with him, people just want to talk to him. He just has this warmth and this charm, and he can say hard things, and people are like, isn't he great? Uh, and that's just, in, and the man has shared the gospel with, with millions of people. And so many thousands upon thousands have come to faith through his preaching and his ministry. But I, I think that we often look at guys like that and we're like, well, we don't have that. I don't have that kind of favor. I don't have that kind of influence. But what is the essence of influence? What is the essence of anointing? Do, are you anointed? Are you? I would say you are, if indeed the Holy Spirit is within you. That every single one of us as believers are called to be witnesses. Now, the level or the extent of our witness, that's up to God to define. It's his, it's his gift to give, and it's his gift to define in and through our lives. But the fact is, is that John tells us in 1 John that you do not need a teacher, for you have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that you don't need teachers or preachers, but he's saying that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives not only to teach us and instruct us, but also to work through us, to make Jesus attractive through our lives. And I believe that the essence of Luis's um, power or influence over people, his favor with people, is, is in direct correspondence to his absolute submission to King Jesus. I believe that each one of us have the ability to have incredible favor with people when we fully submit to the working of Christ 
through our lives by his Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me just ask you the question, did everybody like Jesus? No. Did everybody like Paul? No. So here is the challenge for us as a community of faith, is that favor, spiritual favor or spiritual anointing that draws people to the gospel at the exact same time, it, the, we have to remember that the gospel is a sword that divides. And I think that what we have become comfortable with, that we should not be comfortable with, is, is neutrality. Neutrality is, should not be a part of the Christian vocabulary. The gospel is attractive to those who receive it, and it is, it is offensive to those who are perishing. But I think that we are not discovering the favor of the gospel with the lost because we're too afraid of those that might be opposed to it. So instead of actually being a witness, we hide our witness and maintain a certain level of neutrality in effectiveness, which actually hinders the ability for God to fulfill his desire to reach the city. And I think that this is an important thing for us to understand. Paul had incredible favor with people everywhere he went. But he also was beaten, was stoned, was, had his character consistently attacked, was chased out of almost every town he went into. And so everywhere where God used him to draw people to the gospel, there was also opposition to that. And the exact same thing was true of Jesus. And this is why Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is we accept the difficulties, we accept the tribulation, because when we allow ourselves to be under the full reign or the control of the Holy Spirit, he will utilize our lives to draw people, to bring favor with outsiders, to make the gospel attractive. And this is a responsibility. We should not be looking for neutrality with the culture around us. We need to be light in a dark world, which means that light that exposes also can actually create tension as well. And so I believe in order to actually stand in this reality of spiritual favor, we have to accept that to actually shine the light of Christ into a dark world means that we will also have uh, an offensive quality to those that refuse it. But we're never gonna discover the favor if we're afraid of, of, the, of those that, that refuse. And what we should cling to is the words of Jesus. If I be lifted up, I will draw people to myself. Do we believe that? I love what it says in Psalm chapter 5, verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. How are we righteous? Our righteousness is not something that we manufacture in and of ourselves. We have received into our lives an imputed righteousness that comes through the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our dependence upon him releases his righteous life in and through our lives. It is as we submit to our righteous king that we receive favor with God and men. It's also what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think that when Paul says, if at all possible, live peaceably amongst all people, we should be a continual witness of the goodness of Jesus, bringing the kindness of God, which leads men to repentance, telling the lost world that Jesus, if the people hate you, may they hate you for telling them that Jesus loves them. I pray they don't hate you because you're being lame. And it's never lame to tell someone that Jesus loves them. Why are we so afraid of that? 
I'm sure that we're capable of far more offensive things than telling people that Jesus loves them. May we be a people that have favor with others because we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Look what, look what happens. It says, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, which means they were entering into the, into the season which uh, was known for uh, tempestuous weather, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. The second lesson that we learn in witness is the necessity of discernment. I think this is interesting for us to mark. First of all, I think when you read this chapter, uh, it's very clearly an eyewitness account of Luke. Luke was on this trip, and, and there have been many biblical scholars that say the accuracy around uh, his, his nautical understanding uh, shows that he had to have been there uh, to, to be able to write what he wrote about this particular event. And I think it's fascinating when we consider the discernment. Now, this doesn't, we're not told that Paul has received here um, a vision yet in regards to what is about to happen. Uh, I would argue uh, that, that Paul, is, his discernment is in direct correspondence to his knowledge. Have you ever guys ever read Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers? In The Outliers, you know, there's this whole section on the, uh, it's the, um, what is it, the 10,000 hour rule, that you can't become uh, an expert in anything until you've given at least 10,000 hours to it. Uh, well, Paul had actually traveled at least 3,500 miles by sea by this point. So he had a working knowledge of what he was talking about and was actually sharing from his own experience of sailing discernment. He utilized his discernment to try to warn uh, those that were in control of the ship. They didn't listen to him, but it didn't stop Paul from utilizing that discernment. Uh, and I think that this is a wonderful illustration of how important discernment is for us as a community of faith, because it is a spiritual gift that comes to those that give themselves fully to Jesus. In fact, in James chapter 1, uh, this is a verse that when I first got saved, just so you guys know, at 28 years old, having been a complete underachiever in school, and instead of spending my 20s reading, I spent my 20s playing guitar and trying to be a rock star and mastering how to wear eyeliner. It just really hindered my ability and my confidence in being able to be a solid witness to the gospel. And in fact, I had done so many drugs in my 20s, I was absolutely paranoid that I had done permanent damage. And I know that 
the verdict is still out, but I feel at least God has blinded me to that damage at this point in my life. Uh, but, I, but I remember just praying, Lord, I want to understand you. I want to know you. And the Lord brought me to this verse in James. I remember reading it for the first time, and I clung to it because it wasn't stated as a possibility. It was stated as an actuality, an actual promise that you can take to the bank. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Our witness is dependent upon our discernment. We need to be aware. And when it's talking about wisdom here in James, it's not just talking about any kind of wisdom. It's not talking about any kind of information. Although I believe that wherever truth is found, it still has its anchor and origin in the heart of who Jesus is, who is truth embodied. But I believe that the the responsibility of the believer, our ability to be the witnesses that God has called us to be, to actually have a positive impact on the people around us, is that we need to be a people that have wisdom, divine wisdom, wisdom into the scriptures. The Holy Spirit, we are told, is a teacher and a guide who will bring us in, who will bring to remembrance all that Jesus said, who will also guide us into all truth. But the Spirit can't guide us into something we haven't first put in our heads. The Spirit can't bring to remembrance sayings of Jesus that we haven't first read and hidden in our hearts. And I think that this is incredibly important because too many people live with spiritual ignorance as Christians. You are totally dependent upon what the preacher says rather than relying upon the fact that God has put his Holy Spirit in you as a guide and a teacher, which means that you need to give yourself to the word to understand who God is. How can we be witnesses to a gospel that we don't understand and cannot articulate? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which means that it's not just something to be lived out practically through our hands and feet, but it's also something that is meant to be communicated through our lips, which means it must be taken into our heart, understood, comprehended. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we give ourselves fully to understanding his word. And I think that this is a problem in the church today. We are talking about this as a staff, is that we, we believe in the church, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the fact that we should come together as a community, but do we tremble at his word? Do we believe that the word of God is God's word, God's revelation of himself, a revelation of who Jesus is. What we can know about Jesus is found in the scriptures. You can't detach the scriptures from Jesus. The worship of the living word comes through an understanding of the written word. And I think that this is super important because all, you think about this, discernment, a lack of discernment is what leads to the death of churches. Do you think that Methodists, the Methodist church today is what John Wesley intended it to be when he started it? or the Presbyterian church. Look at most mainline denominations. They started off grounded in biblical orthodoxy, and most of them have moved toward absolute liberalism and ultimately death. They no longer believe in the deity of Christ. They no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And so what you have is is a church that is left as basically a shell of what it was intended to be. not saying that there are plenty of Bible-believing Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches, but I'm saying that mainline denominations, many of them have moved, at least portions of them that caused major splits toward liberalism. And where liberalism is found, the church dies. 
And I think that this is due to a lack of discernment. And we live in an age where we have become increasingly illiterate, more and more reliant upon what we see on the television screen, more and more reliant upon what others say to us uh, in ignorance. Isn't that one of the, the, the essence of, of the arguments that often come against us as Christians? It comes from people who actually haven't read the Bible, but they saw some program on A&E, the History Channel, about the real Jesus. And now they feel like they're experts. Uh, on the topic. I think we have a responsibility to educate ourselves uh, deeply in the Word of God and then rely upon the Holy Spirit to give us discernment. Discernment doesn't come, spiritual discernment doesn't come if we don't take the time to hide His Word in our hearts and minds. And I think that this is important. Paul's discernment in regards to what was going on as a ship was due to his, his firsthand knowledge of actually being on these trips. And I believe there is spiritual discernment as well. But I think this is fascinating. Romans chapter 12, uh, verse two, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Do not be conformed to the world. Isn't that one of the great issues of the age is that we are conformed to the world and we interpret God and his word through the lens of the world rather than interpreting the world through the lens of scripture and through God. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Scripture cares a lot about what we think. And if we are lazy in our, in our pursuit of God, we will lack discernment and a lack of discernment hinders witness every time. Al Mohler in one of his books said this, the Christian must understand how to interpret and evaluate issues across the spectrum of politics, economics, morality, entertainment, education, and a seemingly endless list of other fields, the absence of consistent biblical worldview thinking is a key mark of spiritual immaturity. It's a scathing uh, statement about the state of the church today. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature the spiritually mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a powerful verse. That our discernment comes, it's trained by constant practice to actually distinguish between what is good and what is evil. Do we exercise that? I don't believe that I get nearly enough emails questions about, do you just trust everything that, that I say or whoever's teaching, or do you test it against the word of God? May we be a people that are discerning. I need to be held accountable by you. As a discerning community, we hold each other accountable. We grow together as we yield to the Holy Spirit, and discernment is necessary uh, when it comes to witness, because it is by the discernment, knowing what it is that we ought to say in any given minute, having a discernment about what God is up to so that we can be a part of that is absolutely necessary. Look what, look what discernment here is connected to. By the way, the gift of discernment um, is a curse if it's not, if it's not handled with humility because <laughs> it turns into a criticism. Uh, look at verses 18 through 26. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, I love this, this is such a great line, men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. 
yet now I urge you to take heart. And here's where the natural discernment meets the supernatural reality of vision that comes from yieldedness. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, this is the key verse in the whole chapter, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So here they have entered into the heart of the storm. Paul and everyone's afraid for their lives. And here where Paul exercises his spiritual authority uh, by revealing to them direct vision from God. I, I think it's powerful because the very beginning of Acts uh, begins with Peter at Pentecost declaring the very pro- the prophet Joel that in the last day, that in the last days that people would have visions and dreams that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And here we see that being played out as we close the book of Acts. And here Paul's witness is directly in correspondence to his yieldedness to God's presence. And that yieldedness to the God whom I belong and I worship leads to direct revelation, communion with the living God. And I think that this is important for us to understand that the God that we worship and serve is a God who is present. And what the church needs is vision today. We need to have revelation from God. What are you up to, Lord? And how can we be a part of that? And we need to expect, actually, from our leadership, vision. You know, my title is pastor of vision and teaching. If I'm not receiving vision, then you should probably get a different pastor. Uh, So pray that for me. But I think that we as a community need to pray together that God speaks to us, that we receive fresh vision for where God is leading us. Because where there is no prophetic vision, Proverbs 29, 18 says, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Paul's witness was the outcome, I believe, of being possessed by God. Everything derived directly from his relationship to God and his full commitment to him. It is his surrender that leads to divine direction. If I could quote Paul, the key to understanding how it is that Paul has this level of influence, how he moves from prisoner to commander, how he, how he receives, how he has favor with, with, these, with these people on this boat, how from favor he has discernment into what's happening and direct vision from God, a conduit, is all directly linked to Paul's own words in his letter to the Galatians in 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think that this vision that Paul receives from God is, is, truly, is true witness because the fact is, is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that we are able to avoid suffering and trials and difficulties uh, they, but the, the fact is, is that the Christian, it's how the Christian handles those things with direct understanding that God is ultimately in control and that he will put right all that is wrong and that there is a hope in a future and that God, he may not remove the trial from us, but he does promise to be with us in the midst of them. Paul's direct understanding of that, he is able to be a pillar for a, for a group of people that are terrified for their lives. 
Paul is able to be a conduit by which God makes his presence known. Uh, and look what, look what happens. And when the 14th night had come, as we're being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Here is another lesson in witness, is the willingness to confront, to have courage, to speak the truth, even when it puts us at risk. And I think that Paul here shows his absolute courage. I mean, he puts himself at serious risk where he basically turns the sailors in and says, listen, they're trying to escape, but I'm telling you right now, if they, and this shows the level of authority that has now been granted to him, that the trust that is being placed in him is that they actually stop the men from escaping because Paul says, if they get away, everyone's gonna die. It's a powerful and profound picture of, of, of God's presence being manifested through this person at this point. And I think that this, is, this shows us a, a, a something that is desperately needed in the church today is the courage to confront, the courage to actually witness to the truth of who Jesus is. Like I said, the gospel is not something that is meant to provoke neutrality with people. It is something that is meant to bring about transformation and change in people's lives, which means that we actually have to be willing to speak the truth in love. And that's not always easy to do. But I believe, and I had this happen the other day, I was just sitting with my daughter and I just had this overwhelming sense of the reality of the, of, and finality of the very words of scripture that there will be a day when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And that reality, that, that reality of an eternal, that, that the gospel is, is telling us a history and a history has an end. And there's an end to the story. And Jesus is the beginning and the end of that story. And that we will stand before him and give an account. And there was something about that reality that just overwhelmed my heart and it reminded me of why I do what I do. Because let me just tell you, I still, every single week, when I get ready to preach, feel sick to my stomach. It starts actually coming over me on Saturday. I start feeling a little panicky. It doesn't matter how many years I've been doing it but I find preaching a fearful thing. And I, but my commitment to the gospel, my love of Jesus surpasses my fear of you. Now my fear really is just the fear of misrepresenting Jesus to you. But nonetheless, it's probably good that I'm afraid. But may that fear never cause us to keep our mouths shut. But may we proclaim with our lips and live out with our hands and feet the gospel of love the reality of God's redemptive work. And I think that this is a powerful picture of the need to be willing, to, the courage to confront. And Paul does what is right and he confronts, and I think it's a huge element in witness as well. Uh, and I, I, I like what it says in 1 Peter 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It would have been wrong for Paul 
uh, to keep his mouth shut to protect his own life. The whole reason he's willing to confront is because he had this incredible ability to be self-forgetful and other-oriented. Uh, look what happens then, because this Paul turns the whole, uh, the whole atmosphere around here. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now, you can imagine, how many of you have been on a deep-sea fishing trip? Uh, some of you, and most of you haven't. Don't, because you will get so sick. It's, <laughs> it's like, unless you just have the most rock-solid s- stomach. I, even I, boats are bad, helicopters are bad. I get so sick. Uh, but... Just, can you imagine, though, just being in that kind of storm? I mean, appetite's going to be weak. And then on top of that, you're afraid you're going to die. And so like, that's, that's not, you're not going to feel like eating. But Paul is so confident in God's presence with them that he's able to encourage the entire ship to take in food, to, to, to nourish themselves. And I love this. It says, For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. I love Paul here exemplifies active faith. Look at his calmness. He doesn't lose his head. Look at his courage, which stemmed from his self-forgetfulness and faithfulness to God and his absolute confidence in God's protection. I think this is just such a powerful picture. But let me just give you a little side note, because there's something I read about this that convicted me in regards to witness, is that Paul is witnessing to the people that, that God is in control of life and death. I mean, keep in mind, Paul is, is, is feeling, is, believes in the protection of God, but he is going to face his actual death. That for each day, for every single person, it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes the judgment. And that, that reality is real, but he is like Dr. Livingston. I am immortal until God calls me home. But what I think is profound here is actually a really simple little insight where God convicted me when I read it. Paul takes the time in the midst of a disaster to take the loaf of bread, and he doesn't say, just eat it, but what does he do first? He, he imitates Jesus. He, he breaks the bread and he, and he does what? He blesses it. That even in the midst of an, a storm, it still doesn't stop him for thanking God for just this little provision. We might all die, but I'm so confident that God is with us that even if we were to die, we still, he still deserves our thankfulness. He models for this community of people on this ship what it looks like to live in total dependence upon upon God. Give us this day our daily bread. But what it convicted me of is like one of the ways that we can witness in the most basic way in the city of Portland, in a city where we all love to go out and eat meals all the time, do you stop to thank God at every meal? Do you pray in public places? Do you pray over your meal? Do you ever think of that as like, it's actually one of the best ways to witness without being offensive. Rarely are people, nobody has ever in all my years as a Christian, walked up to me while I was praying and say, how dare you? (laughs) In fact, it's even the one thing that when someone experiences a tragedy that's not a believer, and you as a believer, one way that you can witness to them is, hey, I'll I'll pray for you. 
You know what they almost always will say every single time? Thank you. I think that one of the ways that we model that we are followers of Jesus is, is that everything about us should be different. People may see us praying and think that that's different. They're not going to be offended, and it actually is a witness to the gospel. And I was convicted by that because I've gotten kind of careless in my, in my prayers over meals because sometimes my stomach is greater than my thankfulness. And I, and I've, I started getting a little cavalier, even with my family, like the kids get their food and they start eating before I have a chance to pray. And then I've, I'm like, oh, we're all so hungry. And I'll just be like, thank you, Jesus. Like I wave my arm over the table like a magic wand. And, and I, I just, I, I was convicted by this. I'm like, Paul takes the time in the midst of a disaster to model thank, thanksgiving, which is a huge part of Christian witness. That, that no matter what life brings, that we are to be a people that are thankful that God is with us and for us and not against us. And I just think, I just encourage you guys, that is a, a very simple way that you can be witnesses in the city of Portland. If we all took seriously that we should probably pray for our meals when we go out in public, what, is that, what does that communicate? It communicates something different and Christians should be different. We should be different. I think that's important. Look where it ends. I love this because it ends with their physical salvation. But I believe that spiritual witness ends with God's saving work being accomplished in and through our lives. We don't save. Paul didn't save them. God did. But we are called to be witnesses to his saving power. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, I love this, Paul becomes, there's like a Christ-like type here where Paul becomes the, the one for the many. Kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. I love this because Paul moves from prisoner to leader, but in all of it, he's a witness to his king. And I believe that the essence of this passage is wrapped up in, verses, in verse 23, the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship, that the secret to witness is to remember that we belong to God who purchased us through Christ's death, who, who brought forth conquest over sin and death and the dominions of darkness through his grace and has called us by self-surrender into our sanctification. You guys, this is our responsibility to be witnesses. We're not responsible to save people, but we are responsible to reflect our calm, courageous confidence in the very presence of a very personal Jesus who gave his life so that we could live, who died so that we could have everlasting life, to proclaim with boldness that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is our captain, and may we be faithful to witness to his presence 
his saving presence. May we be a witness as a church. May we be a people that have favor, anointing on our lives as we yield to him. A favor that leads to discernment because we are giving ourselves to the word of God because we want to know the God who loves us and saves us. A people that are given fresh vision because we're so close to God that we recognize his presence in each and every day. That we would be a people who are willing to confront the lies of this world with the truth of God's redemptive love. And may we be a people that encourage others because we reflect and represent that love so fully. For they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And may we ultimately be a reflection of his salvation, a salvation that is ours and a salvation that is available to all. May we be carriers of that gospel. Amen.